Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from my corner of the Sonoran Desert, the Old Pueblo, Tucson, Arizona. Episode 150, Embrace Your Inner Mathematician. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit and... Holiday Travel and Craftlet take you to London, Bath, and Wales, Fall 2010. Please go to craftlet.com to find out more about the trip of a lifetime. And we are improving ourselves with the help of the Loop Knittery. That is loopknittery, all one word, dot co dot nz. There is currently a Noro clearance sale going on. Hop to it, kids. <laughs> Hi. Wow. Uh, I thought I was going to podcast four days ago, which obviously didn't happen. Uh, A bunch of last minute stuff came up and I was on a ridiculous deadline for a rather complicated writing project. So I have been unable to get to the microphone because on top of that, and isn't it perfect, that's when my husband left town for uh, two back-to-back trips. So... You know, by the time it got to the point where I could get some quiet time to record, I really couldn't record. I could keep my eyes open. I was passing out at 8.30 or 9. So, I'm back now. And raring to go with Flatland, I have the only audio we're probably going to get out of my dad uh, for you. And I'm, I'm sorry that he's not able to do more because... Well, I do like his voice. However, the woman who's reading the rest of this section of Flatland that we're going to do today... Uh, She's the LibriVox reader, and she has a beautiful British voice, and so we will be able to hear from her as well. I am all prepared with all my many, many notes for Flatland, but before we get to that, we have some crafty stuff. If you are new to Craftlit, welcome. We are just beginning a new book. If you are interested in listening to any of the old books, please go to craftlit.com and click on the library link. You'll see it going across the top of the page. In the library, you'll see a listing of all of the books we've done, and it tells you there in the list what episodes those are. And then below, you will find links to all of those mp3 audio files. I am also going to, I think, be able to convert all of those little audio files to player buttons which might save y'all a world of hurt. So I'm, I'm working on that. It looks like WordPress is going to make that not so difficult. So that is a goal. Um, the iPhone app is up. If you have an iPhone or an iTouch and you wish to purchase that app, it's $1.99. You can get it at the iPhone app store or the iTouch app store. And um, you will get immediately wallpaper and show notes and the same show notes that everybody sees on the um, on the web page but it'll be beamed to you via pdf and you will get the pattern of the week and this week it is the winner of the craftlet 2009 challenge this will also be posted immediately on the website as well so what used to be the 2009 craftlet challenge instruction page 
also a tab across the top of the craftlit.com page that will now become the pattern page. And when you see the sumptuous nature of the winner of the craftlit challenge, you will understand why Kathleen Rogers won. So yay, Kathleen, who's all? It was uh, a tough decision for the judges, but I, yeah, this was really spectacular. And, and not only spectacular, but really um, cleverly, cleverly thought out. All of them were clever, cleverly thought out. But this one had kind of this, this touch of elegance that just reminded me kind of of Hester. You know, this, this amazingly elegant woman in the midst of, in between a rock and a hard place. And there is something very solid and sturdy about this um, neck warmer, which is what it is, that has very cleverly designed A's hidden in it, um, open cable work. You'll be impressed. So yay, Kathleen, lauds all around. Um, and please do go to the craftlit.com website and click on the 2009 challenge to download that pattern for your own very own self. I will have the pattern up so you can see the whole thing, but it will also be downloadable as a PDF file. So one way or the other, you'll be able to get it. Either you can look at it on the page or you can download it and you can love it. All of that information, the pattern, et cetera, et cetera, will be in the iTunes PDF as well. I'm getting used to all of this. So, you know, we're rolling with it. Life, life is an adventure. I have a few announcement-y things for you. Uh, the first one is I got a very interesting email from Rita who is one of our listeners, who wrote to me on Ravelry about this really cool thing, that her mother lives in um, the frozen north in, you won't believe this, a place called Alcott Manor. I'm going to read you a little bit of her email. She says, my mother lives in a junior high school building that was converted to senior apartments after the big flood of 1997. Over the two former main doors are carvings of a young girl reading Little Women, and a boy reading Treasure Island. The school was built in 1933. The children are dressed in 1933 garb. They're very sweet, especially when you look at my junior high schooler in his brand new 10 eyelet Doc Martens and black jeans. Rita, I feel your pain. She said, my mother now lives in an apartment over the gym. The building is called Alcott Manor. Isn't that cool? I just love that image. It's just... Oh, it just makes me very happy. Very happy that we read Little Women, actually, because that was, that was good for so many of us. I also need to announce the winner of our October incentive. These are people who donated to Craftlet during the month of October. This month, the month of October, the prize, the incentive thing is a copy of Amy S. Foster's book, When Autumn Leaves. I am going to put a link to the book in the show notes once again. Um, Amy is, after all, one of our longtime listeners, and the book is a really darn toot and good book. And I said this before, and I'm going to say it again. I read it, and I thought, wow, that was really good. And then proceeded to be haunted by these characters. There are characters in this book who are absolutely still staying with me. And I read this, what, like a month and a half ago, two months ago? Things will just kind of come across my radar and I'll go, oh, just like in Amy's book. 
So I'm really, I'm really saying, if you haven't read it, you should think about it. Christmas present, perhaps, for friends. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because, see, it's like the six degrees of separation thing, only it's really two. Because it's you to me and me to Amy. Which really, if you want to triangulate it, what with us doing flatland and all, it's really one degree. Because if you all were sitting around in a room and we were all just talking, you would be in the room with Amy. So I'm giving it to you. Just take it. It's one degree of separation. (laughs) I hope you don't mind, Amy, that I'm just inviting everyone to come over and talk to you for a little bit. Um, Wonderful book. So that is going out to Danielle in Illinois. Congratulations. You are the winner of the October incentive. For November, two things. We have another signed autographed for you copy of When Autumn Leaves, which is lovely. It's actually, it really is lovely. It's a beautiful book. It has a a lovely little cover. Um, We also have another book, which, hang on. This is called Sweater 101, How to Plan Sweaters that Fit and Organize Your Knitting Life at the Same Time by Cheryl Burnett. Now, I mentioned this book, oh, podcasts ago, many, right after Sock Summit, because I met Cheryl. And this is a book. It's also a signed copy. Uh, It's a book that is, it is designed so well on so many levels. It is a hardcover book. You can hear it. It is spiral bound within that hardcover, like a D-ring folder. You know, it's it's done the right way, so you're not going to mess up your pages as you turn. It so it opens easily and it stays flat. And I'm going to the table of contents. She has um, a very, I think, comprehensive table of of contents because she has basic sweater styles and most of those she is uh, focusing on the shoulders and I was I thought there were going to be more sections and stuff but the more I thought about it the more I realized no that's really where the major structural variation happens everything else is either short rows or make ones or decreases or ribbing and cables and you know stuff like that add-ons that that can alter the shape a little bit by pulling it in here, cinching it there, expanding it over here. But where you're going to get yourself into trouble is the shoulders. So she deals with that, both uh, tubes and flat knitting, so circular and, and flat knitting. And then she goes through math and she does a really nice job with the math. And you wind up having worksheets, you know, at the, at the, the end and, and places to work your math out that you'll probably want to photocopy. So you have multiple, multiple copies. Way back in the beginning when I was talking about the Queen Kahuna sock book, the one that got me over my fear O sock, she had similar things, you know, the worksheets. And this one, um, this one has great worksheets. Um, she talks about gauge for real. It's, it's not just, wow, you should find your gauge. It's, let's talk about what gauge is. Row gauge, stitch gauge, gauge gauge, what it does for you, which, you know, the implication then is what it does if you don't know your gauge or work to your gauge or use the gauge in your favor. And then she has uh, a chapter, how to size a sweater to get the fit you really want. She talks about um, making it longer or shorter. She talks, and here's where I love her. She talks about how to knit for the non-hourglass figure. I 
I was so happy to have her treat us like real people who have real bodies instead of folk knitting models who need to go get a piece of cheesecake. She has a thing on how to take body measurements, which I think is useful, and then how to assign those pattern measurements, how, you know, how to correlate between your body and a pattern. What are you going to need? How are you going to use it? And then she has you fill in a picture pattern, charting for different kinds of shoulders. And then she does necklines, necklines, collars, plackets, all the, the little extra ditties that may or may not you know, have a function within your, your own sweater design. And then, and this was a godsend, schematics for 30 standard sizes. I am not kidding. So she goes all the way from uh, child size six months, all the way up to men's size 50. And then she has the picture and pattern templates and a couple of worksheets, and it is just fabulous. The foreword is written by Linda Skolnick, uh, the founder of Patternworks. And there's a quote in here from Meg Swanson, I think. Oh, maybe it's on the back cover. Yeah, Meg Swanson from Schoolhouse Press said, I had no idea your wonderful book was coming back. Hooray. I don't think I've given a workshop in the last 15 years without mentioning you and it. And Cheryl's just, she is a lovely, lovely person on top of everything else. So this hard copy book, Sweater 101, signed by the author, is part of the November incentive package along with Amy S. Foster's novel when autumn leaves uh both of these books are available now in the store and on amazon and if you go to craftlet.com and click on the cds and t's link you will see at the bottom of that page a new amazon store link i have linked to directly to versions of all the books we've read and these two books will also be linked to on that page as soon as i can get there and add them maybe a couple days but at least that way you know all the craftlet stuff is located in one place for you to trying to find a way to streamline life life is far too complicated don't you think it's just we're heading into thanksgiving everybody's coming in from out of town and then my sister has her wedding which i'm officiating at so i probably need to write the ceremony little things details plus of course all of the grades come due right before the wedding <laughs> that's no stress none none no stress at all and the wedding shawl knitting it, 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 it's happening kind of slowly and i realized i i bought the right amount of yarn according to the pattern but i don't know maybe i'm knitting too loose and i'm using up way too much yarn i have no explanation for this because normally i, I knit well usually i knit at gauge and if anything, I, I used to veer toward the too tight. Now, evidently, I'm veering to the too loose. So maybe, I don't know. Whatever it is, you're supposed to have 14 repeats of the middle stitch, the stitch that you're using that will cross your shoulders, that, that part. And I am so not going to make 14 repeats. I'm, I just changed balls at the end of six repeats. So I figure I'll get 12 repeats maximum and that's going to leave me you know a yarn tail at the end it's terrifying right i'm going to start knitting tighter it'll be a lopsided shawl but at least it'll be complete and i am just hopeful that it all works out because i would hate to have to rip back a whole lot luckily my sister is diminutive i am not i am 5'8 she is 5'3 i think on tiptoes she's tiny so 
you know, I don't know. I hope it fits her. If it doesn't, it's really going to be appalling because I won't be able to do anything about it. And it is an outdoor wedding on December 12th in Tucson, which should be cool at night. But this is that fabulous silk cashmere. And on the yarn thing, I am, I'm all shrug happy right now because they're quick and they're kind of easy, but they're interesting construction. So there's some really... There's some really cool stuff you can do. And I found a free pattern for the Hot Lava Shrug, I think. Or is it Hot, La hot Lava Cardigan? I lost the first page of the uh, Shrug not long after starting it, so I'm not really entirely sure. I think it's the Hot Lava. I'll go find it online for you again. But I got this really way cool yarn. <laughs> way cool because it's not expensive at all, but it's really... It's got a pleasant feel to it, and for Tucson weather, it's going to be more than warm enough. It's from Knit One Crochet Two. It's Geology, spelled G-E-O-L-O-G-E-E, -E -E. and it's a 55 wool, 45 acrylic Italian yarn that is, uh, let's see, U.S. size 7, 18 stitches to every 4 inches. It's like an 8-buck ball of yarn. I, I could... I. Was able, I was able to afford this because I had a gift certificate left over from my, my birthday, but it's knitting up really nicely. I think I have this already up on my Ravelry page. And uh, if you're in the market for a nice, thickish kind of yarn that you can knit something quickly with, because I'm all into quick knitting right now. If I'm not working on the wedding shawl, I really have to be moving with the Christmas presents. I'm liking it. I'm liking it a lot. It has not split on me. I can knit this. It's a single ply you know, it's that lovely kind of um, brown sheep style, single ply, kind of solid, feels good. And I can knit this puppy without looking. So it's holding together just fine. I'm loving it. I think, she inhales deeply, I think that's all the crafting talk I have for you. Because everything else is really horrifying. Like, our craft room, okay, my craft room is the guest bedroom and of course we have guests coming between now constantly between now and the wedding which means there is no craft room for heather which means all the stuff for thanksgiving has to be done before tuesday and all the stuff for the wedding has to be done before tuesday because i'm boxing up all the supplies paints everything else and tearing down my studio and um that's a little bit scary that's that's it's also really kind of sad i was really enjoying having that room to go escape to but but even more better we'll be having family here to spend thanksgiving and then wedding and then hanukkah and then christmas with so yeah i kind of like the family thing i hope that speaks well of me i'm not sure oh speaking of <laughs> more about me i'm on susan's knit a journey podcast she posted the podcast where she interviewed me she made me sound very very way better than i sounded when we were talking i felt like i was just babbling she is lovely and if you haven't listened to her quantum theory podcast you really must I'm going to be using audio next week from my interview with the good men who brought us Plato and a Platypus walk into a bar. And now, Heidegger and a hippo walk through those pearly gates. I got to interview them again last week. 
they send their greetings to all of you. I'm pulling that audio together because a lot of what we talked about, and actually quite a bit out of their Heidegger and a Hippo book, not to mention Plato and a Platypus, but applies to Flatland and quantum theory. And it's like there's this confluence of really cool stuff that's happening right around all of us. And that's just a little piece of it. So that was very exciting. And, uh, and they're, <laughs> they're very, very sweet men. I hope someday I can go to New York and meet up with them and buy them a beer or something. Probably bourbon, I'm thinking, is what we'll be buying. But, uh, but they did send their best to all of you. And I will have that audio for you, I hope, next week, because I think it will introduce some Flatland stuff really nicely. And speaking of Flatland stuff... I hope you're ready, because today we start Flatland for real. Unless you do Euclidean geometry for fun, and some of you do. I know you do. For those of you who don't, this might be a little um, intimidating. The, The good news is this. You may feel intimidated, but it won't last. And I tell you this with knowledge, <laughs> because I felt your pain. Flatland's a book that everyone around me read, and so I heard a lot about it, but I never actually cracked the book myself. And I knew I should, because of what I'd heard everybody else talking about. Not having been a maths kind of person, uh, the math thing really did frighten me when I was younger. And I think it's because nobody ever explained it this way. Like, I understand Euclidean geometry a whole lot better now, having read and listened to the first three chapters of Flatland, than I ever did in school. Why this book is not part of the math curriculum is already beyond me. It just, it's like a no-brainer. It's like life of a cell should be part of your biology class. I, whatever. So, part one is called This World. And there is a, a quote, little epigraph, that says, Be patient, for the world is broad and wide. This comes from Romeo and Juliet, Act 3, Scene 3. And it's said by Friar Lawrence, who's just told Romeo that he's banished. Be patient, for the world is broad and wide. And of course, in Flatland, where we're dealing with a two-dimensional world, broad and wide, with no depth, this is a, an oddly appropriate quotation. So before I start the audio, I want to go over a couple of little interesting tidbits, and then we'll get into the first chapter. There are two parts. Then the first part is more of the social satire, and the second part is more of the kind of the narrative of the story that takes place within that satirical situation. And none of these chapters are more than two or three pages long, so it's, it's not a long book. But... The beginning of this book will sound quite a bit like a science fiction story. And some people call Abbott, the man who wrote this, Edwin A. Abbott, or Edwin Abbott Abbott, they call him kind of a pre-science fiction writer. Now, I took a sci-fi lit class which started with Frankenstein and Dracula and took those on as though they were science fiction because Frankenstein's kind of obvious why you would think of it that way. Dracula, I thought, was more of a stretch, but... But I was surprised in the annotations to see that this is not really considered part of the pantheon of science fiction, which I thought was odd. I'm putting it in my own personal pantheon 
of science fiction because it, it seems right. But it's also interesting to note that our Edwin Abbott Abbott was a contemporary of Lewis Carroll. And that Lewis Carroll, in his day job, when he was Charles Ludwidge Dodgson, Dodge, <laughs> Dodgson, <sighs> yeah, he was a mathematician. And the other interesting thing, I thought, is that Abbott, and you'll, you'll hear it all the way through the narrative, Abbott was a total 100% teacher. He, it's, it's like he's inviting you at various points in the narrative to take out a pencil and piece of paper and draw what he's saying. And, and he he was supposed to have been an excellent lecturer, really quite engaging and, and f- funny in a kind of a dry, wry way. Whereas Lewis Carroll was evidently a horrendous bore. <laughs> I had no idea. You would think, you know, with Alice in Wonderland. So th- there are mathematicians who have studied Alice in Wonderland. And they've said that in um, The Hunting of the Snark, you can see a lot more of the math, but that in um, Alice in Wonderland, you can't, you can't really, unless you know what you're looking for, you're not going to see it. The other book that got mentioned as being one that had a particular um, affinity for dealing with a mathematical theme was the Laputa chapter in Gulliver's Travels. So I, it's interesting because all this stuff was swirling around at the same time that Darwin was swirling around. And we're going to actually get to Darwin in a later chapter. But, um, but Flatland, Flatland did kind of set out there at the forefront of all of this stuff. The other thing I wanted to make sure you knew is that as we go through this story, there are drawings that Abbott did geometric drawings to help elucidate the the situation the the physical situation of flatland they will be explained to you via um, readers notes so you will hear descriptions of what you're allegedly looking at you know if you were reading the book yourself those pictures will be on the show notes and in the iphone notes so whatever platform you're listening to the book on that will be there for you um, available to you and again the players on the website should be up and running now they will be little triangle buttons they are no longer big honking bars they're just little triangle buttons but I'm, I'm trying to make it uniform all the way through which which should help a little bit so don't freak out about the pictures If you are listening somewhere where you can draw, please do. I think you'll find it interesting to kind of sketch what you're seeing in your mind based on the words that you're listening to. And especially it would be interesting to see if you drew what you are hearing description-wise and then you compare it to the show notes. Like any good student, the more of your multiple intelligences that you use when learning, the more easily you learn. Who went to teacher school? So, I am going to start chapter one of Flatland, which gives you basic geometric information on Flatland. And just to reiterate one last time before we start, one dimension 
would be a line segment. It has neither height nor width, but it does have length. So that's the first dimension. Second dimension is a plane. You have width and you have length, but you have no depth. So there, there is no thickness. And I know this is hard to wrap your mind around because that's not the way we live. So it's, it, people will say, oh, it's just like a sheet of paper. Well, yes, it is, except that if you looked at it from the side, there would be no depth. Even as small a micron count as a sheet of paper is, that's more than two dimensions would have. That's cool. And then, of course, three dimensions gives you length and width and height. And then fourth dimension is time, where everything gets bendy and very, very strange. So, we are in Flatland. We are on a plane. And because, obviously, the rules are going to change considerably from a three-dimensional world, we are getting a, a long explanatory from a square, the, the narrator of our story, who is going to explain to us what it's like to be in Flatland. He knows who he's talking to. He knows he's talking to someone who lives in space. That's what he calls three dimensions. And that he, he lives in Flatland. And he's only calling it that for our benefit. Okay? So, all right, here we go. You ready? Getting on your math hat. Getting those green visors on. And getting the, the cuff protectors on to keep your ink off of your sleeves. and Because we all live in the 19th century. Okay, here we go. Flatland, a romance of many dimensions by A Square. Part One This World. Section 1. Of the Nature of Flatland. I call our world Flatland not because we call it so, but to make its nature clearer to you, my happy readers, who are privileged to live in space. Imagine a vast sheet of paper on which straight lines, triangles, squares, pentagons, hexagons, and other figures, instead of remaining fixed in their places, move freely about on or in the surface, but without the power of rising above or sinking below it, very much like shadows, only hard and with luminous edges. And you will then have a pretty correct notion of my country and countrymen. Alas, a few years ago, I should have said my universe, but now my mind has been open to higher views of things. In such a country, you will perceive at once that it is impossible that there should be anything of what you call a solid kind. But I dare say you will suppose that we could at least distinguish by sight the triangles, squares, and other figures moving about as I have described them. On the contrary, we could see nothing of the kind, not at least so as to distinguish one figure from another. Nothing was visible nor could be visible to us, except straight lines. And the necessity of this I will speedily demonstrate. Place a penny on the middle of one of your tables in space, and leaning over it, look down upon it 
it will appear a circle. But now, drawing back to the edge of the table, gradually lower your eye, thus bringing yourself more and more into the condition of the inhabitants of Flatland. And you will find the penny becoming more and more oval to your view. And at last, when you have placed your eye exactly on the edge of the table, so that you are, as it were, actually a Flatland citizen, the penny will then have ceased to appear oval at all, and will have become, so far as you can see, a straight line. The same thing would happen if you were to treat in the same way a triangle or square or any other figure cut out of pasteboard. As soon as you look at it with your eye on the edge of the table, you will find that it ceases to appear to you a figure and that it becomes, in appearance, a straight line. Take, for example, an equilateral triangle, who represents with us a tradesman of the respectable class. Figure 1 represents the tradesman as you would see him while you were bending over him from above. Reader's note. Figure 1 is a downward-pointing triangle with all sides equal. End of reader's note. Figures 2 and 3 represent the tradesman, as you would see him if your eye were close to the level or all but on the level of the table. Reader's note. Figure 2 shows a much flatter downward-pointing triangle, with the top edge much longer than the other two sides, which are of equal length. Figure 3 is flatter still, barely identifiable as a triangle at all. End of reader's note. And if your eye were quite on the level of the table, and that is how we see him in Flatland, you would see nothing but a straight line. When I was in Spaceland, I heard that your sailors have very similar experiences while they traverse your seas and discern some distant island or coast lying on the horizon. The far-off land may have bays, forelands, angles in and out to any number and extent. Yet, at a distance, you see none of these, unless, indeed, your sun shines bright upon them, revealing the projections and retirements by means of light and shade, nothing but a gray, unbroken line upon the water. Well, that is just what we see when one of our triangular or other acquaintances comes towards us in Flatland. As there is neither sun with us, nor any light of such a kind as to make shadows, we have none of the helps to the sight that you have in Spaceland. If our friend comes close to us, we see his line becomes larger. If he leaves us, it becomes smaller. But still, he looks like a straight line. Be he a triangle, square, pentagon, hexagon, circle, what you will. A straight line he looks, and nothing else. You may perhaps ask how, under these disadvantageous circumstances, we are able to distinguish our friends from one another. But the answer to this very natural question will be more fitly and easily given when I come to describe the inhabitants of Flatland. For the present, let me defer the subject and say a word or two about the climate and houses in our country. So that's my dad. I'm sorry he's not going to be able to read more of the book for us. Maybe maybe we can sway him and convince him to read more. And of course, maybe it's just that 
I'm used to listening to him read to me. <laughs> it's hard to know. You can tell me. So A-square just told us kind of the basics about the flatland layout, which we reviewed before. And now we are looking at, uh, as A-square just told us, we are going to be looking at the climate and houses in flatland. Now, Abbott does some really interesting things here with shape and light and stuff like that. So I'm going to give you some, some basics first. Um, <laughs> Descartes. When Descartes started thinking, uh, the stuff that he came up with is uh, called Cartesian Descartes. Cartesian. So you are going to be learning about Cartesian coordinates in a plane. You didn't even know that. So think about a grid, uh, just like graph paper. And remember that if you took a particularly small section of land and made a flat map of it, the curvature of the earth would be so slight that you would have what looks like graph paper you know, with the lines fairly far apart for your latitude and longitude lines. Flatland is just like that. So it's the same kind of coordinate grid that we use, except ours is, of course, circles that wrap all the way around one part of the earth and then all the way around the next, you know, however many feet or miles or whatever it is before your next line of latitude and longitude, however many degrees you're moving, north, south, east, or west. So that's Cartesian coordinates. Uh, he does the same thing, but he's doing it flat, okay? And he's giving you a north, a south, an east, and a west. But again, it's on a plane. This is where it gets weird. Things like the rain always comes from the north, okay? But it's flatland, so the rain isn't falling from outside the plane onto the plane. It's coming from the north edgeness of the plane because it's infinite and falling down like sliding across like if you like oh here you go if you take bb's on the floor but you have a box of bb's and you swing them on the floor and they go those bb's are moving along the floor the same way the rain moves along in flatland How's that for winging a definition? I like that one. Okay, so when he says the rain comes from the north, well, that means if you're going to have a house, which side of the house do you want most protected from the rain? Well, that would be the north side of the house. So instead of having a roof the way we think of a roof, because of course that would be with depth, it's a roof in flat. <laughs> you're going to get it, I promise. There's also a joke coming up, and it's the only pun he's got in the book. You remember how uh, when we were in school, we learned about X, Y axes and that you could draw a square, which was point A to point B, and that would be like the top line, and then point B to point C, and that would be the right side vertical, and then point C to point D, and that would be the bottom edge, and then D to A would be the left side vertical. Well, listen to the letters that he uses when it's time to describe the roof of the house. It's very clever. You might want to draw it. Uh, let's see, there was another thing I wanted to warn you about. Oh, he does this interesting thing with the south. The south, he's talking about it being the temperate zone or that it's more temperate down in the south. Well, of course, the plane is infinite, so that's a little weird, but it's kind of like the the north 
side of the plane pulls you that's how you know it's north and the south side of the plane is very relaxing and the further south you get on the plane the less the north's influence is on you and he makes a couple of very interesting cracks about women in this chapter this is the beginning of the social commentary and he's he gets snarky about it and so i i want to remind you that like with any good satire whether you're doing um, a modest proposal with uh, Jonathan Swift and horrified at the idea that eating children might be a way to solve the hunger problem, the satire gets pointed out to you in such an obvious and outrageous form that you can't help but be shocked and offended by it. If you don't understand that it's satire, you will believe that the author actually feels this way. And I posit the following. If an author is going to come out and say something as appalling as some of these statements about women are, you really couldn't be that dumb. I mean, you wouldn't say it. You simply wouldn't say it this way. You would, you would abjure. You would not say this in mixed company or to, to any kind of a, a, a group that, that may not completely agree with you. The only way you wind up coming across with statements like this is when you're trying to point out how ridiculous they are. It's just like in a, a World War II novel, if you've got Nazis, that they're not going to say anything nice about the Jews. It wouldn't make any sense. It doesn't mean that the author feels that way. It's that that character feels that way. And... And so you do need to keep that in mind as you listen to his social commentary, because not only does he get snarky about women, and there are some very specific places where he he actively makes fun of Victorian convention, like, you know, men should always take the street side when they're walking down a sidewalk so that the woman is protected on the, the inner side of the street. Which, mind you, when horses were on the street and people maybe weren't such good drivers or everybody drove like they're in Rome, that it makes a certain amount of sense to have the guy who was probably not wearing a corset and could run if he needed to, have him on the street side and have the women on the inside. Plus, you know, if you were wearing a silk dress and you got splashed by a kind of sewage-filled puddle, better it go on the cotton wool-wearing person rather than the silk jacquard-wearing person. A lot of these traditions started somewhere. At the same time, you will definitely hear uh, a couple of digs at that kind of almost provincial attitude towards uh, women and people in general. You're also going to hear the description about the houses, which I, I told you about. And he's um, Abbott has done something complicated. He's decided that light would be like evidently if you study euclidean geometry which is basically what you're doing by listening to this book um, the light source is the light in the room and that's what's lighting the plane it's ambient light which of course makes no logical sense because obviously if the light is coming from without then there is a third dimension Instead, he kind of talks about them being, it's, it's almost like they create their own light. They're luminous creatures. And I think it's just best to keep it that simple, that they, they can see each other by 
this kind of luminous quality. And again, it's very difficult to contemplate because there is no depth to the plane. So, you know, the closest you're going to get is a sheet of paper, except thinner. <laughs> la, la, la. Okay, so here we go. We are going to listen to chapter two on climate and housing. And this is read by the voice that you heard doing the reader's notes. This is the LibriVox reader, and I thought she was very, very good. So, yes. Here we go with chapter two. Section two of The Climate and Houses in Flatland. As with you, so also with us, there are four points of the compass, north, south, east, and west. There being no sun, nor other heavenly bodies, it is impossible for us to determine the north in the usual way, but we have a method of our own. By a law of nature with us, there is a constant attraction to the south, and although in temperate climates this is very slight, so that even a woman in reasonable health can journey several furlongs northward without much difficulty, yet the hampering effect of the southward attraction is quite sufficient to serve as a compass in most parts of our earth. Moreover, the rain, which falls at stated intervals, coming always from the north, is an additional assistance, and in the towns we have the guidance of the houses, which of course have their side walls running for the most part north and south, so that the roofs may keep off the rain from the north. In the country where there are no houses, the trunks of the trees serve as some sort of guide. Altogether, we have not so much difficulty as might be expected in determining our bearings. Yet, in our more temperate regions, in which the southward attraction is hardly felt, walking sometimes in a perfectly desolate plain where there have been no houses nor trees to guide me, I have been occasionally compelled to remain stationary for hours together, waiting till the rain came before continuing my journey. On the weak and aged, and especially on delicate females, the force of attraction tells much more heavily than on the robust of the male sex, so that it is a point of breeding, if you meet a lady in the street, always to give her the north side of the way. By no means an easy thing to do always at short notice when you are in rude health and in a climate where it is difficult to tell your north from your south. Windows there are none in our houses for the light comes to us alike in our homes and out of them, by day and by night, equally at all times and in all places, whence we know not. It was, in old days with our learned men, an interesting and oft-investigated question, what is the origin of light? And the solution of it has been repeatedly attempted, with no other result than to crowd our lunatic asylums with the would-be solvers. Hence, after fruitless attempts to suppress such investigations indirectly by making them liable to a heavy tax, the legislature, in comparatively recent times, absolutely prohibited them. I, alas, I alone in Flatland, know now only too well the true solution of this mysterious problem, but my knowledge cannot be made intelligible to a single one of my countrymen. And I am mocked at, I, the sole possessor of the truths of space, and of the theory of the introduction of light from the world of three dimensions, 
as if I were the maddest of the mad. But a truce to these painful digressions, let me return to our houses. The most common form for the construction of a house is five-sided or pentagonal, as in the annexed figure. Reader's note. The figure shows a pentagon slightly skewed to the right, with two sides marked RO and OF, forming a point marked O to the north. The left or western side, which has a large opening marked men's door, is marked AR. The right or eastern side, which has a small opening marked women's door, is marked BF. The base or southern side is marked AB. End of reader's note. The two northern sides, RO, OF, constitute the roof, and for the most part have no doors. On the east is a small door for the women, on the west a much larger one for the men. The south side, or floor, is usually doorless. Square and triangular houses are not allowed, and for this reason. The angles of a square, and still more those of an equilateral triangle, being much more pointed than those of a pentagon, and the lines of inanimate objects, such as houses, being dimmer than the lines of men and women, it follows that there is no little danger lest the points of a square or triangular house residence might do serious injury to an inconsiderate or perhaps absent-minded traveller suddenly running against them. And therefore, as early as the eleventh century of our era, triangular houses were universally forbidden by law, the only exceptions being fortifications, powder magazines, barracks and other state buildings, which it is not desirable that the general public should approach without circumspection. At this period, square houses were still everywhere permitted, though discouraged by a special tax. But about three centuries afterwards, the law decided that in all towns containing a population above 10,000, the angle of a pentagon was the smallest house angle that could be allowed consistently with the public safety. The good sense of the community has seconded the efforts of the legislature, and now, even in the country, the pentagonal construction has superseded every other. It is only now and then, in some very remote and backward agricultural district, that an antiquarian may still discover a square house. All right. You keeping up? <laughs> so, a couple of things that I wanted to point out. One, did you hear A Square talking about himself being the, the only one who knew the truth of space? That's because of what happens in the second part of the book, where he actually makes contact with the third dimension and, and has to kind of wrap his brain around what it would be like to have depth as well as width and length. And... Um, He's obviously not doing well in his own uh, world because of having come into this. And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting because it kind of makes him a prophet or a seer, you know, someone who's, who's seen the light and then has to come back and try and tell everybody else what he's been up to. And uh, that doesn't always go very well for the people who bring back that information. The other thing that I thought you should probably refocus on is they've got the pentagonal houses. They used to have the square houses. And it all comes down to this angle Thing. The sharper points, like on a triangle that has two equal lines and a very small base, so it's tall and thin, kind of like a cedar tree, that would have a very pointy top. And a house like that 
would be dangerous because everybody's, of course, floating around and moving within the flat plane. You don't want to jab yourself on some sharp point. But there's also something uh, where it said that it's uh, triangular houses were universally forbidden by law, the only exceptions being fortifications. Well, there's a note in here that uh, some fortresses in, I think it was the 1600s, started being built in uh, star shapes. So you have to picture this for a minute. Think of a star, not like a pentagram, not like where you can see the lines, but where all you can see is the outline of the star. And think about how if you were at the top point, if you were standing up there on a roof at the top point, and somebody was attacking the northern edge of the right-hand branch of the star, you would be able to shoot at them. So ultimately, all of your walls are protected because from any one of those five points on the star, you could look back at your own walls, your own ramparts, and stop people from getting in. So Abbott's point is that uh, they were allowed to make constructions like that if it was for a fort, but not for any kind of house. And of course, for a fort, you wouldn't want to go close to it anyway. So that worked out well for them. So that was chapter two. Now, the inhabitants. This is the big social satire chapter. You are going to hear that isosceles triangles are the lower class. You're going to find out the middle class, the professional or gentleman's class, the nobility. And then he he puts at the highest point circles. And circles he puts into the, um, the priestly class. Well, of course, he's a minister himself. So I kind of went, and then I was talking to my husband. And of course, he said, well, of course, because circles are supposed to be perfect. And if you're, you know, if your goal is to attain enlightenment, or if you're looking for God, then you want a perfect circle. It makes perfect sense. And then I went thwack on my head and said, duh. So that's interesting. You are going to hear some horrifying social commentary on what happens to a child of two isosceles triangles who is born equilateral and what society felt it was important to do for that child. You will also hear, and I'm going to read this bit to you because I thought it was very interesting. As he talks about how people move or don't move within the social structure, you can tell, I mean, he, I think he even uses at one point the word evolution. No, he doesn't. But you can, you can tell that he is being influenced by uh, The Origin of Species, uh, Darwin's book that came out in 1859. So this book comes out 30 some odd years later. Victorian society, it rocked their world when Darwin released his book. Uh, and then The Descent of Man, which came in 1871. Both of these books, uh, well, you know, rocked everyone's world. I thought that that what we hear of the debate was accurate to Darwin's book. And I wanted to read you a bit of the side note because he says, Abbott is describing in this passage from Flatland, not Darwinian natural selection, not even its survival of the fittest dumbing down, but the widespread Victorian misreading in which the central feature of evolutionary change is progress towards a higher state. We, we all like to believe, if, if there is evolution, we would like to believe that it means that we're improving. And 
you have to remember that natural selection would just be natural. It doesn't mean that we're getting better. It just means we'd be adapting to our environment and whoever can't adapt to that environment, their genetic pool will die off and the genetic pool that survives in that environment will continue on. It's not like, you know, I need an extra arm so I grow an extra arm. If that were the case, all mothers would have eight arms and we would be kicking butt. But, you know, that's not how evolution works. It's all, you know, happy accidents. So you will one of one of the points that he's trying to make is that social darwinism this idea um that it's all progress that's what fed this kind of horrible victorian social darwinism social darwinism idea that it's it's good not to do things for poor people because if you make them work for it that's going to improve the species. That's going to improve them because, because they're going to work harder and then somehow miraculously, genetically, they're going to pass that striving onto their children instead of looking at how the very stratified, codified Victorian society's rules were actively working to keep the lower class in their place. And I use that very specifically because you are going to hear about things, people in Flatland being kept in their place. You should know that the college that Abbott taught at was very progressive and in many ways very liberal. They, it's a private university. They had Jews, they had Roman Catholics, they had everyone there. So it's social satire and Abbott is pointing at the things that horrify him. So we should also find ourselves kind of shocked at some of the things that happen here. So yes, big, rockin', fat social satire is what you're going to hear in this chapter. And I, I, I think I've given you everything you need to know. So here we go. Section 3 Concerning the Inhabitants of Flatland The greatest length or breadth of a full-grown inhabitant of Flatland may be estimated at about 11 of your inches. 12 inches may be regarded as a maximum. Our women are straight lines. Our soldiers and lowest classes of workmen are triangles with two equal sides, each about 11 inches long, and a base or third side so short, often not exceeding half an inch, that they form at their vertices a very sharp and formidable angle. Indeed, when their bases are of the most degraded type, not more than the eighth part of an inch in size, they can hardly be distinguished from straight lines or women, so extremely pointed are their vertices. With us, as with you, these triangles are distinguished from others by being called isosceles, and by this name I shall refer to them in the following pages. Our middle class consists of equilateral or equal-sided triangles. Our professional men and gentlemen are squares, to which class I myself belong, and five-sided figures or pentagons. Next above these come the nobility, of whom there are several degrees, beginning at six-sided figures or hexagons, and from thence rising in the number of their sides, till they receive the honourable title of polygonal or many-sided. Finally, when the number of the sides becomes so numerous 
and the sides themselves so small that the figure cannot be distinguished from a circle, he is included in the circular or priestly order, and this is the highest class of all. It is a law of nature with us that a male child shall have one more side than his father, so that each generation shall rise, as a rule, one step in the scale of development and nobility. Thus the son of a square is a pentagon, the son of a pentagon a hexagon, and so on. But this rule applies not always to the tradesmen, and still less often to the soldiers and to the workmen, who indeed can hardly be said to deserve the name of human figures, since they have not all their sides equal. With them, therefore, the law of nature does not hold, and the son of an isosceles, i.e. a triangle with two sides equal, remains isosceles still. Nevertheless, all hope is not shut out even from the isosceles that his posterity may ultimately rise above his degraded condition. For after a long series of military successes, or diligent and skilful labours, it is generally found that the more intelligent among the artisan and soldier classes manifest a slight increase of their third side or base, and a shrinkage of the two other sides. Intermarriages, arranged by the priests, between the sons and daughters of these more intellectual members of the lower classes, generally result in an offspring approximating still more to the type of the equal-sided triangle. Rarely, in proportion to the vast number of isosceles births, is a genuine and certifiable equal-sided triangle produced from isosceles parents. Footnote. What need of a certificate, a Spaceland critic may ask? Is not the procreation of a square son a certificate from nature herself, proving the equal-sidedness of the father? I reply that no lady of any position will marry an uncertified triangle. Square offspring has sometimes resulted from a slightly irregular triangle, but in almost every such case the irregularity of the first generation is visited on the third, which either fails to attain the pentagonal rank or relapses to the triangular. End of footnote. Such a birth requires, as its antecedents, not only a series of carefully arranged intermarriages, but also a long-continued exercise of frugality and self-control on the part of the would-be ancestors of the coming equilateral, and a patient, systematic, and continuous development of the isosceles intellect through many generations. The birth of a true equilateral triangle from isosceles parents is the subject of rejoicing in our country for many furlongs round. After a strict examination conducted by the Sanitary and Social Board, the infant, if certified as regular, is with solemn ceremonial admitted into the class of equilaterals. He is then immediately taken from his proud yet sorrowing parents and adopted by some childless equilateral, who is bound by oath never to permit the child henceforth to enter his former home or so much as to look upon his relations again, for fear lest the freshly developed organism may, by force of unconscious imitation, fall back again into his hereditary level.
The occasional emergence of an isosceles from the ranks of his serf-born ancestors is welcomed not only by the poor serfs themselves, as a gleam of light and hope shed upon the monotonous squalor of their existence, but also by the aristocracy at large. For all the higher classes are well aware that these rare phenomena, while they do little or nothing to vulgarize their own privileges, serve as a most useful barrier against revolution from below. Had the acute-angled rabble been all, without exception, absolutely destitute of hope and of ambition, they might have found leaders in some of their many seditious outbreaks so able as to render their superior numbers and strength too much even for the wisdom of the circles. But a wise ordinance of nature has decreed that, in proportion as the working classes increase in intelligence, knowledge, and all virtue, in that same proportion their acute angle, which makes them physically terrible, shall increase also and approximate to the harmless angle of the equilateral triangle. Thus, in the most brutal and formidable of the soldier-class creatures, almost on a level with women in their lack of intelligence, it is found that, as they wax in the mental ability necessary to employ their tremendous penetrating power to advantage, so do they wane in the power of penetration itself. How admirable is this law of compensation! and how perfect a proof of the natural fitness and, I may almost say, the divine origin of the aristocratic constitution of the states in Flatland. By a judicious use of this law of nature, the polygons and circles are almost always able to stifle sedition in its very cradle, taking advantage of the irrepressible and boundless hopefulness of the human mind. Art also comes to the aid of law and order. It is generally found possible, by a little artificial compression or expansion on the part of the state physicians, to make some of the more intelligent leaders of a rebellion perfectly regular, and to admit them at once into the privileged classes. A much larger number, who are still below the standard, allured by the prospect of being ultimately ennobled, are induced to enter the state hospitals, where they are kept in honourable confinement for life. One or two alone of the more obstinate, foolish, and hopelessly irregular are led to execution. Then the wretched rabble of the isosceles, planless and leaderless, are either transfixed without resistance by the small body of their brethren, whom the chief circle keeps in pay for emergencies of this kind, or else more often, by means of jealousies and suspicions, skilfully fermented among them by the circular party, they are stirred to mutual warfare and perish by one another's angles. No less than 120 rebellions are recorded in our annals, besides minor outbreaks numbered at 235 and they have all ended thus. End of Part 1, Section 3 Recording by Ruth Golding So you got that, that uh, women are one-dimensional? We are line segments. We don't even have width. 
we just have length. And, uh, and wow, um, so children who are born apparently with promise to rise above their class are taken away from their parents and put into a childless couple's home where they can never see their parents again. <sighs> there was stuff going on he didn't like very much. But I, I sure like, um, I sure like Mr. Abbott. The other thing, of course, you need to remember that was going on at this time was people were getting involved in that kind of pseudoscience of the brain that Stephen Jay Gould wrote about in The Mismeasure of Man. The bigger the brain, or the bigger the skull, the bigger the brain, the more the intelligence. We can talk about this a lot more later, but it's, it's something for you to remember that that was kind of during the same time period, that whole phrenology thing. So you're going to hear lots of stuff like that too. And now it's late and I'm going to leave you. Have a great week. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Please remember to support the people who support Craftlit. Visit Knitting Out Loud, Listen While You Knit, and the Loop Knittery in New Zealand at loopknittery.co.nz. And please visit the blogs and sites of Craftlit supporters. Those links can be found in the sidebar of the show notes. The show notes can be found at craftlit.com, or you can subscribe at iTunes. Craftlit is made possible by the generous support of its listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on. <laughs>